With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening and thank you so very much for joining us here tonight on Our Common Ground. As many of you and most of you know, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia made his transition somewhere between last night and this morning. In, um, he is, no matter how you feel about him, a very important figure in the life of Americans. And we're going to be joined by 
some very good friends of ours tonight to talk about it. I know that we had indicated to you that uh, we would be talking about Beyonce and her fishnet revolution, and we will be doing that in the second hour. But in this first hour, because of this breaking news of uh, the death of Nino Scalia, we're going to be joined by Pascal Robert, the thought merchant, um, a journalist and a thought leader who writes for the Black Agenda Report, and our friend Yvette Cornell of BreakingBrown.org to talk about what this means uh, for the Obama administration and the race and also for the race for the White House. Um, You know, it's uh, really interesting that... um, before the man's body is cold, the Democrats, in the voice of um, McConnell, have already begun to look to see how they can block uh, a nomination by the current sitting president who has 10 months left in his presidency. There are five Republican appointments. Uh, currently sitting on the bench. I can simply say to you that nothing more important has happened in this political year, in your lives. I'll put it that way. 24 hours ago, Republicans were headed into what remains of the current Supreme Court term with a solid majority and a docket strewn with some of the most consequential cases in decades. Affirmative action, abortion, birth control, immigration, and effort to shift congressional power to Republicans All of these issues are before the justices this term. And President Obama will undoubtedly nominate someone to fill the vacant seat to the Supreme Court. If he does not, I would be highly, highly surprised. I I just have to say this. You know, um, I... I know that all of you know that I have been, like, having my own little private party on this, Um, and it's not nice, and I will pray for my redemption tomorrow. All evening I have been saying this, that we have to understand that The devil has died, but his work will forever be a haze in our lives. Mark Twain once said, I've never wished a man dead, but I have read some obituaries with great pleasure. And tonight at Our Common Ground, I raise my hard ginger ale to Mark Twain. 
uh, my mother would be absolutely, unbelievably ashamed of me tonight. But that's okay. Redemption tomorrow. Let me tell you a little about, if you do not know, Justice Scalia offered some transformative legal theories, vivid writing. And and let me just say this. Um, This was a man who graduated from, I think he went to Columbia Law School. I'll just guess at it. It doesn't even matter uh, (laughs) at this point. But his outside personality made him a leader of a conservative intellectual renaissance in his three decades on the Supreme Court. He was a a champion of interpreting the Constitution as it was understood at its adoption. And he was found dead on Saturday. Raise raise my heart, Ginger Ale, again. I'm going to do the Reverend Al Sharpton tonight. I have always already had enough crunchy, I don't know, cheese Cheetos, um, having my own little party. Um, the president came on uh, national television tonight um, to bring the nation sympathy to his family. Uh, in 2011, Judge Richard pa- Posner in the New York in the New Republic wrote about Scalia, the most influential justice of the last quarter century. He was a champion of originalism, the theory of constitutional interpretation that seeks to apply the understanding of those who drafted and ratified the Constitution. And then after a while, he just didn't even believe in the Constitution. He just made up his own Constitution. He disdained the use of legislative history. And by the time he wrote his most important majority opinion, finding that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms, Even the dissenters were engaged in trying to determine the original meaning of the Constitution, the approach he had championed. So we say farewell. He wrote for a very broad audience. But the thing that we should remember is that in December of 2015, while sitting on the court, he had these things to say. There are those who contend that it does not benefit African Americans to to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, uh, as opposed to having them go to a less uh, advanced school, a a, a slower track school, where they do well. One one of the briefs... uh, uh, Pointed out that uh, that most of the most of the black uh, scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. So th- this they court come from lesser schools where they do not feel uh, that they're uh, that they're being pushed ahead in in classes that are too too fast for them. This so, court, oh, I, you know, I'm I'm just not impressed by the fact that that the University of Texas may have fewer. Maybe it ought to have fewer, and maybe some. You know, when you take more, the number of blacks really competent blacks admitted to lesser schools 
turns out to be less. And, and I, I don't think it's, it, it stands to reason that it's a good thing for the University of Texas to admit as many blacks as possible. What is your takeaway hearing a Supreme Court justice saying something like this and from the bench? Is there any ambiguity in what he said for you? Oh, well, there's no ambiguity at all. I mean, it's racist and it's elitist. I mean, that's pretty clear. You know, I think I've over the years I have um, expended all of my outrage <laughs> against Justice Scalia, and now I have to look at him almost comically, to be honest. He's he's uh, the timing is perfect because he it's like he and Donald Trump could be like a supervillain team or something. <laughs> I mean, he literally looks like a cross between Mr. Potter, the villain, and It's a Wonderful Life, and the penguin from Batman. I mean, he is just, to me, a grotesque person, and the grotesquerie comes from the inside out and not the other way around. And, and, and I think he and Donald Trump are really just engaging in the same kind of elitist, uh, racist, uh, bigot, bigoted kind of um, arguments and, um, you, you know, what I really hate most about it is that uh, you would never hear Scalia say that any uh, of the Bush family perhaps didn't deserve to go to Yale because they didn't do well enough in school. And maybe they would be in a classroom where others would be smarter than them, George W. Bush. But, of course, when it comes to African Americans, he says, well, if they don't have the grades, they just don't have that much to contribute when there's so much that people contribute. Intelligence is not an empirical science. It, 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 it is so vast and immense. And can, so many people could sit at that table, Justice Scalia, Anybody and join the conversation, point, okay? You don't have to come from a certain IQ level or a certain educational background to be a highly capable and contributing member of a student body as an African-American who's at the top 8%, because this is what the University of Texas currently has, the top 8% of their high school, they are working hard too. They are often accomplishing those amazing grades without the benefit of tutors and family members who are carrying them through. I have friends, and these are smart friends, okay? I have friends whose parents were doctors and had great, came from great backgrounds, and I remember one of those friends telling me that her dad wouldn't even let her do her own science projects. He did them for her because it was so important that she get an A. So there are people who do very, very well in school who do not necessarily accomplish it on their own. To be in the top 8% of any high school, especially when you have the zero support that many of these minorities have in their home lives, is extraordinary. And it should be rewarded with access to the very best colleges and not with a warning that some professor is going to make them feel stupid and show that they don't that they can't keep up in that class they can keep up Scalia probably better than you could
possibility of black people being able to best them in competitions academically, professionally, for union jobs, or whatever else. And his his paranoid uh, paranoia and resentment at that policy, at that possibility, was was evident in not only his judicial temperament, actual Supreme Court decisions he 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 decided, and even comments he made while he was a professor at University of Chicago. So when I went when talking about Antoline Scalia, I never met the man personally. As I said, I had one professor in common with him. But everything he represented, his whole worldview, as a first-generation child of an uh, Italian uh, immigrant who came to the United States, I believe his father was an Italian, Italian intellectual who came to the U.S., and, 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 and all of the racial animus that comes with that position, growing up in New York City, I know it well. I saw it in people I was in high school with, and I understand everything that motivated him. And it is not an accident at all to me that he had a strict constructionist view of the Constitution, that he had this reactionary worldview, because his motivation, his raison d'etre, reason for being, as they say in French, was purely about the fact that he wanted to prove to the white wasp power elite in America that he could do whatever they wanted to do just to prove that he was worthy of getting their approval. His, he, he lived with a consistent resentment that he was not admitted to Princeton. In fact, he stated that he was not admitted to Princeton undergrad because they didn't want to take Italian-American boys like him. I believe he went to Georgetown undergraduate. So all of the resentment and angst and class and cultural uh, self-hatred that many of individuals from his positions have relative to the WASP power elite, relative to other black and brown people around him competing for the scraps of American society was evident in everything about him and how he manifested himself in the way he looked at the world. Let me um, go to Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com. Yvette, what do you think is the legacy for black people and for this country in this vacant seat. You know, I'm just hoping there's some juicy gossip going on around what happened because they're not saying nothing about he had a heart attack or he had a stroke or what, uh, and he was down there in Texas. He was supposed to be hunting. I'm just hoping some really juicy stuff comes up out of that. But (laughs) tell us what you think. What you think might be um, your your take on Scalia uh, as as just a as a man and as a justice? He bullied um, he bullied attorneys on uh, from the bench, and I think that's just an awful thing. But I'll talk about that later. Well, I I I I I agree I agree largely with Pascal. I th- I think his animus for not and not, I want to say minorities, his animus for black people specifically, a lot of the times was was always, you know, or a lot when we when when cases about affirmative action and those sorts of things came to the forefront, it was 
it, it was almost as if a lot of times he enjoyed needling us. He enjoyed, like, you know, putting this sort of bell curve logic on display to sort of say, you know, look at these, look at these Negroes. They can't, they can't, they need to go to, they need to go to community college. They can't make it here. You know, that's not possible. And so I think, I think that's his, I think for, for, for black people, at least that's his legacy. I mean, I was, I was talking to a friend before we started to call and who was saying, you know, I'm not going to be black, white, the white me people, white mainstream. They're not going to demand sympathy for me. You know, I'm not going to give that. They're not going to have a conversation with me where I say, yes, you know, it's, I, I offer my condolences. I'm not offering anything. You know, you, you're not going to you're not going to kind of shame me into anything. And so I think that is the feeling um, that, that we get from anyone who really paid ever paid any attention to, to, to Antonin Scalia. I mean, just in the way he just in the way he moved and the way he operated, he was a bully. He was loud. He was obnoxious. You know, he, that, that's just who he was. And he he liked to just kind of like kick us around and say things. And let's let's be honest, half the things he said, you know, it wasn't even if those things he, that he was really trying to make a legal point. He wasn't trying to make a, a legal point at all. He was just trying to kind of just put black people on display as 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 yet again, you know, these people are inferior and they are where they are for the most part because of their own dysfunction, because of their own moral shortcomings that have, you know, they're on, they're incapable of taking advantage of this gift that of America that has been bestowed upon them as, as you know, without taking into account any of the foundational reasons why black people are poor and how that poverty leads us to certain behaviors when we have nothing, you know? So, so, you know, that I think is his legacy in terms of how he would be remembered by, by black people. I think black people mm-hmm. are, are like, you know, happy black history month kind of right now. That's just how I feel. <laughs> I love that event. Happy Black History Month. Scalia is dead. Okay. <laughs> I love it. But 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 here's the point. The point is that this has pretty much put every part of the political landscape having to do with the 2016 election of a new president and having two parties that don't seem to be able to articulate to any specifics the the uh, 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 carving out a future, formulating a some kind of uh, formula for which they plan to unhinge black people in this country. So, what does this mean, and how this upturn? for both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, no matter how you feel about them, and for the GOP that's already trying to block a nomination for the, for, uh, by President Barack Obama. And, before, and, and so you can have this conversation in some kind of a flow. Let me add another question. What does it mean for him and his legacy? Because I see this as an opportunity for everybody. Uh, I'll take the first shot at that. In terms of uh, Obama's legacy, I think that uh, the the reality is, in terms of the the configuration of the Senate right now, the Republicans are controlling the Senate, uh, and the mechanisms that they have to block this nomination. For example, there is a rule called the Thurman Rule, which was uh, initiated by another racist political figure, Strom Thurmond, when Lyndon Johnson tried to uh, nominate Abe Fortas 
in his last year of presidency when he was not going to get, he decided not to rerun, and uh, for political reasons and otherwise, uh, Thurman decided to oppose Abe Fortas's nomination, uh, and basically said, "We're just not, we're not going to allow this to happen." Uh, Fortas eventually did get put on the bench. He was actually made chief justice, but the ability of uh, of of senators to block the uh, the uh, nomination of a sitting president in his lame duck last year of office is a unofficial rule called the Thurman rule and it, it has been used before. Uh and uh even without that that tactic, because the Republicans control the Senate and they're in control of the Judiciary Committee, they can just sit on this and have it wait out until Obama leaves office. So as much as people will say that they they can't do this, actually they can, and it would not be very difficult for them to do that. So the first thing we have to realize is that the capacity for the Republicans to block this nomination for a year absolutely exists in terms of the, the, the configuration of the Senate. The question is, is that are, what are the resultant political optics of having the Republicans do this in an election year where you have Barack Obama, you know, regardless of what our various thoughts are of him, he is the first black president who has faced significant opposition by the Republicans in an election year where both the House, uh, the Senate, uh, most of the federal, federal judiciary is controlled by, you know, Republicans or right of center Democrats. So the stakes are high. What are the political optics in terms of how this will affect the 2016 election and regarding Obama's legacy? Uh, in terms of Obama's legacy, I'm sure that he he realizes that he needs to go out with a fight because if he capitulates in any way, what I mean, even though the Republicans have the actual strategic ability to do this, when I mean capitulates, I mean does not put forth a strong statement using the bully pulpit to highlight the obstructionist nature of the Republicans blocking his nominee, it will be a profound waste of political capital, not only so much for him, but for the Democratic Party, because that kind of fight looks very good for whoever the Democratic nominee will be to show that Basically, they can turn this into the statement that the, the Republicans don't want the first black president to be able to replace what is universally considered by many people of right-thinking mind a horrible racist reactionary justice so they can preserve their legacy of those type of politics. And I think that in order for Obama to reap some benefit of maximizing how this can affect his legacy. Whoever he nominates, he needs to push aggressively, and he needs to constantly point in the figure of the Republicans and be like, look at what these guys are doing. I'm, the black, I'm a black president, and there's no other reason for them to do this simply because they don't want me to put in someone to replace this racist reactionary on the bench. Now, how can that even be maximized to Obama's a legacy and future, uh, 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 how he's regarded in the future of American politics. I put this on Facebook earlier, and I told uh, I told uh, Yvette this: if Barack Obama shrewdly uses the identity politics 
that are so resplendent in the Democratic Party, i.e., if he says, okay, if they're going to block whoever I'm going to put up anyway, why don't I block some, put up someone who is going to make them look so horrible for trying to stop that it gives me and the Democrats maximum political capital, and it literally makes them terrible both politically and and in terms of their hopes for winning the White House. And I think the best way for him to do that, quite frankly, is if he nominated a black woman. Because the optics of the first black president nominating the first potential black woman Supreme Court justice and having these reactionary Republicans trying to block that in the face of a potential Donald Trump nomination in a year of horribly racist political rhetoric coming from the Republicans will give so much political capital to him, even if he fails in getting her nominated, and so much potential political fodder for whoever the Democratic nominee will be, and I, I probably assume it will be Hillary Clinton, regardless of what I think about her, that it opens up so much rich Territory. It becomes a target-rich environment. I can see the talking points now from Hillary. As a woman, for me to think that the Republicans would block the first black woman nominee in American history out of their reactionary racist politics to replace a man who was considered to be an anathema to any right-thinking progressive demonstrates why you need to make me president of the United States. It would be an epic, epic use of political capital, of political theater to his advantage. Do I think he will do that? I don't absolutely, I'm not sure. Well, it's certainly against everything that we know about how he operates. And thank you very much, Pascal Robert, for killing my black history moment. But... (laughs) I just came up with a name in my head, and it's Leah Ward Sears, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Georgia. Yes, I, I actually looked that. her up. Yes, I looked her up. She's a potential. She would be a, a very good uh, pick. She's now in private. She's actually now in the, the private sector. I believe she's no longer on the bench. She's actually working for a major firm. Uh, I think that that would be a good pick there. Actually, there's another black woman who's actually – very, very conservative, who ideologically would be easier for the Republicans to pick, but in terms of how her judicial temperament would be, it would kind of be disastrous because from what I know about this woman, she's actually even more conservative than Clarence Thomas. Uh, but she was considered one of the black women that could possibly be uh, an Obama pick as well. But uh, I think that we should really come to the conclusion, though, that whoever he picks, particularly if it's a black woman, I think that the likelihood that they will actually get nominated uh, is slim because I do believe that the Republicans will take this to the mattresses to stop it from happening. I like to yeah, hear Yvette. I, 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 I agree with you. Yvette, what do you think um, how this is going to play out? Well, you know, here's the thing. People, people, what, what people need to really, really think about right now, it was just last week that the Republican um, Republicans actually refused, you know, and it was unprecedented to actually receive Obama's, um, I think it's a $4 trillion budget. But that's not normally the way things go. Normally, normally, normally when that happens, 
what you have is Congress, you know, officially receives that budget, and they hear from the the, the white the White House, you know, chief economics economist or whoever, and they just refuse to hear it. So I think um, if 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 he does go, if Obama does decide to go down that road um, of of doing what Pascal says and and nominating a woman, um, given everything um, that he has endured, you know, I'm not a fan of Obama, but that doesn't mean that he hasn't endured a, a lot of racism from and a lot of disrespect from the right. And he can mm-hmm. use all of that. Like, he can use all of that as firepower now. Like, now, before that was just crap that happened to Obama. If he nominates a black woman, that can now be deployed as ammunition against Republicans in the sense of, see, they've been doing this the whole time. And this is just an extension of that. Because I don't see how – I understand I understand the precedent that, that Pascal talked about. But it, it's very difficult for me to see, um, to, 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 to constitutionally understand um, the idea that the Republicans are making that Obama, because he's in his, he's in his, he, he's in his last year now, he shouldn't be able to confirm someone. I mean, when you think about it, people elect people elect presidents for four years. They don't elect them for three. Obama has almost another year to go. It's yes, not over. ten months. You know, yes, he. This, this, you know, Scalia died on his watch. Now, if he had, if Scalia had died at a time like, a, you know, someone pointed out to me earlier, if we had elected a new president and he died, well, that we wouldn't. You know, if, if, if people had sort of, and he has, you know, we hadn't gone through the inauguration process, well, the people have spoken. They have said that they want somebody new or whatever. We don't have time to vet or do whatever anyway. Okay, that's different. But you're telling me that we have 10 months, and you're telling me that because you don't, because he's in his last year, that he doesn't have the constitutional authority or obligation to do it right now, or that you're going to block it because you say he's a lame duck? I just, that doesn't fly for me. And I think even even though I think I don't think that will fly for a lot of people. Now it doesn't mean that the Republicans aren't going to block it. They've done a lot of things in terms of the filibuster rulings and things like that in terms of blocking of blocking Obama and blocking legislation. But what I'm saying is that Obama has a Obama has a lot to stand on right now, and he needs to. I mean, one of the things that one of the criticisms we've always made about Obama that he doesn't have any fight that he's like this milk toast guy who's kind of spineless and who kind of goes in and, he, and is ingratiating. You know, whether that's willful or whether that's naivete, people can disagree. But I think Obama might want to go out with the fight, and this is the kind of fight that he can really make hay of. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 here's the the other point of. Um the caveat um, in response to both of you is that this has the potential to really be his legacy. The the, the other point I want to make is that uh, Hillary Clinton very quickly on the announcement of this of the death of Scalia indicated that the president should not abdicate his responsibility to raise up uh, a nominee. So I think that she would, and I'm and I'm kind of guessing about Bernie Sanders because all he did was to say nice things about the dead. I'm kind of guessing that Bernie Sanders would also support uh, a black female nominee. And there are people in the Senate like Elizabeth Warren who would fight to the death on this? Well, I mean, the, the reality is, is that, and I understand what uh, you and Yvette are saying in terms of that, but the reality is, is that the, the Republicans, as usual, overplayed their hand. 
The biggest mistake Mitch McConnell made was making it seem like it was almost constitutionally a violation of political principle for Obama to think about nominating a Supreme Court justice as a lame duck in his last year of his term, which is something that Ronald Reagan did with uh, Justice Kennedy. So this is this is that's 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 ridiculous. It's nonsensical, and they really they, they overshot themselves by doing that. If they had been prudent, they would have just continued on with their effusive admiration of Antonin Scalia, said nothing, and just simply blocked the nomination and just let it be blocked and, and, and just have it go that way. And then basically, you know, Obama couldn't get his nominee in. Because the reality is the question is not about the constitutionality of Obama being able to nominate something. He he has to nominate someone, all right? The, but the reality and the, the sad point is that the Republicans made it seem like it was some kind of breach of presidential protocol to think about doing that, which was a fraud, which is an absolute fraud. But the reality on the ground is that in terms of the configuration of the United States Senate, it is not remotely difficult for the Republicans to block this nomination. When you are in control of the Senate Judiciary Committee as a political party, you basically you don't even have to worry about filibustering. You just sit on it. It goes nowhere. So the the, the thing we have to understand is that the way in which this process works, the, the whatever fighting Elizabeth Warren or other people want to do, it's going to be in the media. There's no taking this to the floor of the Senate. You know, this is a done deal. If the Republicans don't want Obama to get someone nominated in a year, they have all of the this rudimentary mechanisms to do that. The question is, how do does the political atmosphere create an ability for the Democrats to shame the Republicans to either nominate, put put the person Obama nominates on the bench, or lose so much political capital for sitting on the nomination that it costs, costs them in votes in the 2016 election. And the Republicans already overplayed their hand by making it easy for the Democrats by literally stating out front, we, we are not going to you know, accept any one of these nominees. And that was, that was an you know, idiotic emotional reaction because one of their sacred cows got slaughtered, which is, which is Scalia. And and the, the 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 point that I'm saying is that in terms of Obama's legacy, and I mean this might sound kind of kind of you know you know uh, untoward, but it doesn't matter if who he nominates get elect gets elected gets 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 put on the bench. What matters is that he nominates someone that is considered by most right thinking Americans as so important to put, be put on the bench that when the Republicans actually block that person, it is considered to be one of the motivations to get that crucial black vote out to make sure a Democrat wins the White House to finish off Obama's job and get that person, which would be smart, correctly and intelligently be a black woman, on the bench. And it creates an excellent mechanism for a Hillary nominee or a Sanders, but it will probably be Hillary, to use that to galvanize black votes, to assure that she's in the White House, promising that she's going to make sure that this person gets on the bench. So what I'm saying is that the way this affects Obama's legacy isn't even so much whether or not the person gets on the bench. It's a question of who he nominates and how he uses the political capital from the nomination process 
to say that I tried to put the first black woman on the bench and the Republicans stopped me and Hillary Clinton can then take the ball and say, I will finish this job and carry out Obama's legacy and the Democrats ride into the sunset and, and, and win the 2016 election. That assumes Obama chooses uh, you know, the, the black woman identity politics card. He might not choose that. Quite frankly, what he actually might say, listen, it's more important to me, to me to try to get someone on the bench. So what I'm going to do is that I'm actually going to choose someone who doesn't necessarily have the right uh, identity politics configuration, but because of their ideology, the Republicans – really won't find that person too offensive or have justification to take them out and will put them on anyway. And I'm afraid that he's going to try to play that card because, frankly, and that card is within his personality. That's how, that is actually how he operates. I'm not going to really confront and fight these guys. Let me choose someone who I think they'll like anyway, and they'll, gonna, they'll probably prove them, and I'll at least get another person on the bench. If he and it never works. He's not going to work. He's still going to lose, and he will not have been able to use the maximization of the political capital that he could have by nominating a black woman. And I think the perfect person for alternative B that will be a squandering of all that capital, who is very high on all of the uh, legal uh, uh, you know, chattering class media figures list, is an Indian-American gentleman named Sri Srinivasan. Sri Srinivasan is someone that Obama recently nominated to the federal bench. He basically comes out of a corporate legal practice. He is, you know, he has no real uh, ideology in terms of that anyone can stand on to, to criticize him, but he's worked as a hired gun litigator for, you know, mercenary corporate interests. He's, he basically got his bones trying to defend Enron. You know, so this is a guy who doesn't have anything that particularly progressives should rally around at all, or people on the left at all, but because he's Indian-American and he, he, he can play the new model minority card and he's not going to get uh, you know, uh, Republicans all energized about, oh, he's trying to put a black person or a black woman on there. Obama might say, well, let's put, let's get three on, because I'm sure they will have less of a problem with him. And I think that if he does that, he's going to be blowing a major, major opportunity, because that will give him no political capital with African Americans. It will give no political capital to Hillary with the African American vote, and it will actually increase resentment among African Americans, because it will be like, you chose this Indian guy, and you didn't choose a sister. What's wrong with you. Uh -huh. I think that so, would be the worst so thing you could the do. General, the, 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 the general electorate will be asking the question, what is less than zero? And the answer will be the chances of Obama successfully appointing a Supreme Court justice to replace Scalia because it has no political uh, capital. Uh, this mis mysterious African-American person that you alluded to earlier, Pascal, who who are you talking about? Oh, the potential justice that he might nominate that mm -hmm. uh, is more conservative than Clarence Thomas? Yes. Is that the way? Janice Rogers Brown. Okay, Janice Rogers Brown will provide the script. She will take the place of of the the, the loving relationship that Scalia and Clarence Thomas had. You're absolutely right. 
Yeah, but she gonna, is. He, he she is a black libertarian, hardcore right winger who is more conservative than Clarence Thomas and to the right of Clarence Thomas and Loretta Lynch. Uh, she, the Republicans, have would have no ideological reason to oppose, oppose her. But this is the thing, though, because you know many black folk may not be a student of her politics or political demeanor. He might still get the I got a black woman that I put on the I suggested to the bench card. It's another Kudos Loretta Lynch. An, 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 another. Uh, Lynch type, Lynch esque. You know, you know, but the, but the thing, the thing that the thing that kind of throws that off in this case is that Bernie Sanders is in the mix, and even if even if Hillary doesn't want to say it, even if even if black people aren't paying attention enough to say it, I think Bernie's going to say, I think Bernie's going to bring up this person's record. I think. I don't I, think I, Bernie I, Sanders I, is going to have. I, think, I don't I think, think Bernie I Sanders think, is going to have think, the nerve think, to oppose think, any think, black woman no, simply sir, because. I, I, I he, agree with you. I agree with no, you, Pascal. No, no, no. No, no, no. I don't. I don't. I disagree. I disagree wholeheartedly with both of you on this. I don't. I don't think. I don't think a person, or even a black person, with white with white wing bona fides, is going to be appointed by the first black. I mean, he he. This guy has a legacy, and I mean, it, it's it's a very different thing if you're appointing someone who is an unknown and they turn out to be conservative. But for you to for you to appoint a woman who is a known conservative, you're going to even have milk toast liberals coming up. And, and and staging a mutiny, you know, on their on their own behalf. I, I think that in the Democratic Party, the identity politics of a black woman neutral listen, if we use Obama as a model, why is there no anti war movement in America right now? Because we have a black Democrat president. And I think that the Obama the, the, the identity politics politics narrative of a black woman Supreme Court nominee, regardless of her politics, would scare many white liberals from challenging the first black president, possibly putting the first uh, black woman on the Supreme Court if he chooses to go with this woman uh, that who is you know a, a, a ridiculously absurd conservative, Janice Rogers Brown. I don't think he has to. I mean, if he really, really says, "I want to put someone on the bench," the reason why I don't think he'd go with Janice Rogers Brown is that what you're telling me is it's you want to put someone on the bench. Who you know is going to be fighting against Democrats? I mean, Janice Rogers Brown was a was a Bush appointee. I mean, she was appointed to the bench by by, by George George W. Bush. So I I mean, he could she could was he also, do that? Yes, she was also on his short list for uh, Attorney General. And yes, she was on a short list for for, yeah. for, for Attorney. So that to, that to me, the fact that she was on a short list alone tells me that listen, Barack Obama, you know, uh, you know. Sorry to burst the bubble for many of our African-American listeners, but Barack Obama is not liberal or progressive. He's frankly conservative. There's a reason why this man said that he wanted to, to replicate the, rep, the, 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 the legacy of someone like Ronald Reagan and why he says well, Ronald Reagan did America a great service by curbing the excesses of the 60s and 70s. This is not a, a man who is liberal or remotely progressive. He is actually a center-right Democrat. So It is the bottom uh, line as to why he announced his his campaign from the very beginning in Springfield, yeah. Illinois, because he felt that Lincoln, uh, Abraham Lincoln, was his favorite yeah. president. Yes, but that, that that doesn't change the fact that that Obama Obama as a Democrat is not going to appoint someone who was on George who was on George Bush's list of of attorney generals. That's just not going to happen. And part of the reason that's not going to happen is because we've all lived through Clarence Thomas. You know, you had Maya Angelou saying, "Well, he's black. He's going to do the right thing. He's one of us." And I think I think what black people are are sort of slowly but surely waking up to 
is the fact that melanin doesn't doesn't kind of imbue you with superpowers in order to, in, in in the sense of in the sense of making you automatically progressive or making you automatically liberal or making you automatically leftist. So I don't I I, I think you know when you look at Sears, I think I think that she may be the play in terms of a black woman for that position. But I don't think there's any way that someone who was who was who was nominated by the Bush administration is going to be nominated by this president. I mean, listen, I, I'm not wedded to to this particular conservative woman as the option. I'm not wedded. I mean, I, 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 my my position is this: you, you, Janice, you asked me what would be the best way for him to to secure his legacy. I think the best way to maximize all of the political atmospherics is for him to nominate a black woman who is obviously going to be a centrist like him. And regardless of whether she gets nominated or not, he gets out with a bang saying, I nominated the first black woman to the Supreme Court, and look what these Republicans did. And and, and he walks away into the sunset, and Hillary carries the torch over into the next uh, election cycle, elect, elect next administration and finishes off the job. I think that would be the most sound use of political capital, but that also assumes that Obama actually has some true you know, modicum of progressive leaning in his politics. And what I'm saying But he doesn't. Is, I mean, we, we, we have to look at the two uh we have to look at the history of his appointments to the Supreme Court. Yeah, um, I mean Elena Kagan, uh, Elena Elena Kagan, Kagan was supposed a, to be a, his a liberal oh. justice. Sotomayor was supposed to turn the Supreme Court upside down. Neither one of them has done that. Well, if, if anyone was a close student of their legal and professional background, specifically Elena Kagan, I actually wrote a piece in the Huffington Post when Elena Kagan was nominated saying, that, will Elena Kagan's nomination teach liberals the truth about Barack Obama? Because she is, she's, she's almost a right-winger in terms of her politics. Yeah. And, and yeah. Sotomayor is basically just a moderate. She, she's, you know, as much as she's Which is she why made you find... Some, some, Which is why you great... find on progressive decisions made by this court, all of the dissenting opinions have been written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, that's, that, that, that tells you a lot right there. That tells you a lot. It tells you an awful lot. We're going to have to take a break. Can you stay with us? Listen, sure. folks, you're listening to Our Common Ground, and, yeah, Yvette and um, – Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com and Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report is going to be staying with us. <laughs> the ginger ale is talking tonight uh, on this issue of Scalia. We're going to stay on this because this is so important. The impression about what you understand about what his death and a nomination by the Obama administ- by the Obama White House will mean is going to guide you to reformulate, recalculate the way in in which you are looking at, hopefully, uh, the candidates going forth in this race for president. This is our common ground, and we are going to put Bay and her fishnet revolution to the side uh, and we'll get back to it. Don't forget, next Saturday night, right here, we're going to be talking and joined with in a discussion about a number of things, but 
uh, looking at the neoliberal turn in black politics with Dr. Lester Spence and his new book, Knocking the Hustle. You stay with us. We'll be right back. I see we have some calls, and we'll take your calls. Uh, It's really interesting that this is a great music for this. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Quinn. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. This year, nearly 242,000 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. Hello, this is Reggie Jackson telling you to talk to your father, brother, grandfather, uncle, and friends about prostate cancer. And then join me in the Prostate Cancer Foundation to help keep Dad in the game. Go to PCF.org and make a pledge for the Prostate Cancer Foundation's Home Run Challenge. Again, PCF.org. Let's keep Dad in the game. Make a pledge. Make a difference. I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real, raw, right now. If it's real, raw, right now, talk media. Come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Talk soon. Join my friend and colleague on Blog Talk Radio every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. The I Declare Show with India Declare. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Dealing with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare Show, baby. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. There are those who contend that it does not benefit African Americans to to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, uh, as opposed to having them go to a less uh, advanced school, a less a, a slower track school where they do well. Uh, one one of the briefs. Uh, uh, Pointed out that uh, that most of the most of the black uh, scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. So th- this they court come from lesser schools where they do not feel uh, that they're uh, that they're being pushed ahead in, in classes that are too too fast for them. This so, court, so I, you know, I'm I'm just not impressed by the fact that that the University of Texas may have fewer. Maybe it ought to have fewer, and maybe some. You know, when you take more, the number of blacks 
really competent blacks admitted to lesser schools turns out to be less. And, and uh, I don't think it, it, it stands to reason that it's a good thing for the University of Texas to admit as many blacks as possible. What is your takeaway? And that was Justice Antonin Nino Scalia on his comments on Fisher versus University of Texas uh, in December of 2015. Joining us tonight, you. Thank you very much. And our number is 347-838-9852. And our guest commentators tonight, Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com and Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report. We thank you all for being with us. Yvette and, and Pascal, before we went to break, uh, one of the things that we are faced with is clearly a community that's enamored into the principle of identity politics. And whether we like it or not, appointments to the Supreme Court, uh, especially the activist Supreme Court that we have in place, which was led by Nino Scalia. He was a very activist judge, uh, justice. Um, and, 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 and the thing that, that I'm concerned about is that whoever put forth by President Barack Obama uh and it and they have a black face is that there is going to be a fight for the nomination to be successful i'm concerned about that because as zora neale hurston says uh everybody of your skin color ain't your kin and all your skin folk ain't your kin folk that's right, and you and Yvette. I mean, I, I'm 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 going to call you all out. I want people to know that we hang on the phone talking about this stuff ongoing all the time, and this whole notion of the reckoning. I mean, what has happened with Bernie Sanders and John Lewis in the past week is the consequences of identity politics. The fact that Baltimore has somehow just crawled off the radar is a consequence of identity politics. The fact that the Congressional Black Caucus endorsed Hillary Clinton at the wrong time, through the wrong lenses, and in very, very shallow waters of a presidential election is a is a symptom of identity politics and the way in which people that we elect, black people that we elect, black people who we support, like Loretta Lynch, uh, that they end up doing us real bad. <laughs> That's the best thing I can say about it. I mean, we get crushed by our own more often than we, as often as we get crushed by the rest of them. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I would say one thing. I would say one thing. No, no, Des. Let me just say one thing. Uh, there are, and, and you and I, you and Pascal, we all know that how we get caught up in identity politics. You know, that's how we got Obama. 
you know, we didn't ask the right questions. We got caught up in the idea we we're going to have our first black black president. But I would say this: there, even in identity politics, there there are limits. Um, and the, the the one point that I would make is that I don't see that anyone, most black people, don't identify as, as Republicans or conservatives. So the only thing I would say is that you know I don't expect black people to get behind the equivalent of a Ben Carson um, for for the for the for the um, Supreme Court no- nomination. Now that doesn't mean that that we're not going to get somebody who is dangerous or who is duplicitous or who is like Obama, who's like a center center right politician. That's totally that 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 is totally within the within the within within. You know, within the the bounds of, of of possibility that we're looking at right here, but but there are still some limits. Okay, I, I see what you're saying. Well, in terms of uh, identity politics and, and and how it plays out, particularly for Black people, the one the, the the one thing we have to realize is that identity politics is all the Democrats have left, and what I mean is all the Democrats have left is that. You know, besides Bernie Sanders, you know, and I give him credit for the redistributive agenda that he's claiming to 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 propose, which you know, as much as I may appreciate, I doubt will have be, become become a reality because I don't think he's going to get the nomination. The Democratic Party, I mean, the DNC as a party. I'm not talking about Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialist, who is, is now running as a Democrat. The Democratic Party as a party has not demonstrated that it is interested in massive, massive policy agendas to transform the lives of black people, poor people, and working class people uh, as a collective agenda. The only time, the only reason why it is being discussed now, frankly, is because of of Bernie Sanders. And the one thing that I give him credit for is that Bernie Sanders has improved the discourse around what is capable in American politics in a way that I think is better than anything I have seen in my adult life in any presidential election. I mean, we actually have people who are embracing the concept of uh, uh, you know a redistributive socialism legitimately and seriously in American politics and talking about you know you know breaking up the banks I wish he would say nationalizing the banks but he won't go that far so you know the rhetoric and the discourse is good but the realities of where the Democratic Party is as a party is not where Bernie Sanders is the Democratic Party since the rise of the new Democrats with Bill Clinton in 1992 and even before that with the birth of the DLC the Democratic Leadership Caucus is about uh, appealing to Wall Street finance capital major corporations to neutralize progressive voices and black voices to ensure that Democrats use the illusion of progressivism and identity politics, which basically means, you know, we have we have the blacks, the women, the gays, and the Latinos, but because we get the blacks, the women, and the gays, and Latinos who are reactionary and almost right-wingers, you feel good because we can say, we're diverse. Look, I'm part of a party that puts on black, you know, black secretaries of states who will drop bombs in Somalia, but we're progressive because we're not like those racist Republicans. Oh, we have elected a black person who's going to cut social security, welfare, and everything else as a Democrat. Yes, yes, we are a diverse party, but we're not like those racist Republicans. And that's where we are right now. That well, is the I, I danger. think that there's a, a, a measure 
of um, immaturity that we have in, in, in our community. And that's what I was saying earlier. But um, that somehow, even if there were a magic unicorn that could shit, I mean, could expel magic <laughs> dust, <laughs> that could expel magic dust, my sister's listening and I apologize to her, that could expel um, magic dust that would make everybody, like, get up to speed uh, about the reality of this political uh, mechanism. Um, And we would have a nominee that we all could agree about. But Yvette, today you wrote um, Uh that Scalia's death is the best news for Hillary Clinton, that Hillary Clinton could have hoped for and indicated that it it com- really comes down to being a tested and electable candidate. What do you mean by that? Well, after after the, the, the last debate between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, I paid a very specific and intentional um, attention to mainstream news um, from, from – I don't even usually watch TV, but I watch TV – and I paid attention to the to the Washington Post, New York Times. And what you had was this consistent throughout all the newspapers, throughout all the throughout all the television stations, you had this consistent this consistent narrative that Hillary Clinton was the calm, cool and collected candidate. So when I see that sort of when I see that sort of thing, you know, in my mind, okay, this is you don't even have to you people who agree don't have to coordinate, right? So this is this is how the mainstream views Hillary Clinton and this is how a lot of people view Hillary Clinton. Regardless of what you think about her, she has been in the White House before. Even though you you know that she was first lady and she wasn't president, you know her and Bill Clinton, you know did things. She did health care, so they were a duo. These people have come up as a duo, and so when you hear the calm and collected, you know that's what some people, you, you know that's what they're trying to project, and you know that's what Hillary Clinton was trying to project. That's what her people were trying to project during that debate. So when you when you juxtapose that against against Sanders. Who people question, even though the polls show, even though the polls show Hillary and and Bernie about even in terms of how they would do against Donald Trump. You see him at the debate. You know he he he's exuberant in a way and just kind of like waving his finger and trying to get him you know pointy. And when he feels like Hillary Clinton is kind of going too far, giving him a low blow or what, or like he said the other night, like she did the other night. And you see in in the American people how one person um, is is seen or viewed. Among Democrats as being more as being more electable, as being more tested, and one person is not. Now this is where Pascal's scenario comes into play. If 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 Obama selects a black woman um, to be the Supreme Court justice, if he does that, it's actually more beneficial that she doesn't get appointed, because then the next Democrat has a ball to carry, right? So what you look at then is that who's better to carry that ball? Somebody who has Bill mm-hmm. by their side, somebody who has Bill, you know, one of the one of the most, I mean, I, I agree that Bill has been absolutely abysmal in terms of how his policies affected black people, but he's been effective in terms of getting his stuff through. He's been effective with the global initiative. So the question then becomes, who do you want to carry that ball? You want Bernie, the guy that you didn't even know before he started talking about, you know, inequality, even though he supported Jesse Jackson, I know his history, but or do you want that guy or do you want Team Clinton? Who do you trust more? Who has the biggest network? Who has the biggest machine? 
who has the most people to call on for favors in terms of just having the global elite and access to money and access to that sort of thing. And so if Hillary Clinton comes out and says, you know what, Barack Obama did not get that candidate, did not get his Supreme Court nominee through this black woman, I am going to make history for you again. Barack Obama made history for black people for being the first black president, and I am going to make history for you by appointing the first black woman Supreme Court justice if you give me a chance and elect me. That's it. Well, listen, there's a, there's another, this, is a, this is a very simple, basic 800-pound gorilla in the room that, that explains why this is a, definitely a goldmine for Hillary and does not work for Bernie Sanders. It's very simple. Number one, both Bill and Hillary Clinton are lawyers. They're both attorneys. This subject matter, who is the next Supreme Court judge, is totally divorced, really, from the economic analysis that is the root of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Now, does Supreme Court decision affect economic policy? Of course it does. Absolutely. Anyone who understands the Supreme Court knows that. But this is something that is the realm of legal scholars, people who know the law, have studied the law. This is a, these are arguments that are divorced from context of class politics and economics. These are context, these are thoughts, these are discussions that are based on things like what do they view about abortion? What do they think about affirmative action? What do they think about gay marriage? When people, sadly, when most people think about the Supreme Court, they're really thinking about like three or four core issues, affirmative action, uh, abortion, uh, gay rights and homosexual issues, and and maybe some civil rights with voting rights, yeah, civil rights and discrimination, which is actually a very small part of what the Supreme Court does. Most of the Supreme mm-hmm. Court decisions, decisions deal with, you know, labor relations law. There's a, I mean, there are a few cases right now that are crucial cases that are very important. There's a case right now about the ability of unions to charge people uh, who are members of their unions uh, fees if if the, the people opt out, this could have a devastating uh, effect on union membership and the absolutely right, the, the ability of which is why we're so we're having the party for Scalia tonight. You know, this is this is a very 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 uh, uh, important decision. The affirmative action decision is a very important. That's decision. right. So you know, so this is important. Redistricting climate things. control. I mean, this is one of the things that uh, Obama has lost with this con- with, with with this court. Is the the major issue for the Obama administration has been immigration and climate control and climate right. change. These these subject matters, which all are nexus with the, the legal realm, are outside of Bernie Sanders' bailiwick. Bernie Sanders is the guy who's talking about. Finance capital, capitalism, the poor, poverty. These, in the mind of the body politic, this this does not mesh with Sanders. You don't think about Sanders when you think about the Supreme Court. No one has ever mentioned Bernie Sanders in the context of the importance of the Supreme Court. When you think about the Clintons, you're like, these people are lawyers. These people understand the importance of the stakes here. So there is a natural, almost inclination to think that a Hillary Clinton will be better to understand the mechanisms of how to get the right person on the Supreme Court 
than a Bernie Sanders because this is really outside of his bailiwick. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that he can't do it. Of course he does. But the thing is, though, the question that also people have is that what kind of political infrastructure does Bernie Sanders have, a man who was not even in the Democratic Party? I mean, understand something. The DNC has a historical list of the voting record of every federal judge in this country. They have think tanks. They have nonprofits. They have whole social organizations, political organizations of DNC-related lawyers who are scrutinizing this, that are attached to the Democratic Party, which are appendages of the Clinton. Does Bernie Sanders even have that kind of mechanism to make yeah. these kind of evaluations? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's it's a credible question. The the thing that I'm that 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 is at the core of that is does Bernie Sanders have the grit to call it out? We've got some callers, um, and I apologize to one person who had been holding on for a long time and hung up. Uh, but three eight five, you're on the air. Three eight five. Hello, how you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you for your call. Hello. Um, well, before I start um, talking and whatnot, I just want to say this show is actually completely interesting. Uh, thank you for the dialogue. It's a actually really great dialogue. Thank um, you, and we hope you'll join us every Saturday, 10 p.m. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm usually off now. Um, so, well, first of all, before I start, um, you know, I am actually I'm not progressive. I actually, I'm a, a Republican. Actually, um, a lot of it has to do with. Um, the, my my personal beliefs. Now, I don't personally think that redistribution in the sense of a standard socialism and whatnot is evil. Um, I think my party, well, I can be honest about my party. My party is so ridiculously split and uh, extremist and divisive. What is your party? And, and, and what is your I party? I am Republican. I actually am Republican because in my state, You're, are, I are you African American? Yes, I am. I am. Okay. Um. In my state, um, I plan on, you know, one day soon running and getting on the ballot myself and um, becoming a part of the Senate and Congress. Um, but before all those things, um, there's a lot of things that I don't – I'm not against, and I guess that's why I want to get involved in politics, mainly as, as far as redistribution goes. I think there's um, a lot of um, ways that we can come to the table, and, and the problem is that when we're talking about, you know, two-party politics, and you guys talk about, like, um, identity politics, you know, it, it's hard because, you know, you're right. There's been people, black people who have been put in positions of power who have worked against us, and, and, it, and it's hurt us in so many ways. But there are more white Republicans that have been put, elected and put in a position that hurts us. Let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah, sure, no problem. Those people that are in my party literally – um, are devoid of history. I actually talked on C-SPAN the other day about um, Medicare and Medicaid and how Ronald Reagan, you know, the, the Republican hero, uh, <laughs> was against it, you know, and, and talked about the down about it. But when you think about the Medicare and Medicaid numbers and its pure value, it's improved in America. Why okay, can't let me, we, Okay, so... Go on to say you got to say. Okay, I, 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 thank you, because, you know, like, okay... Um, but here's a question I have to ask for you, ask you with the history of the GOP in this country from the 1960s up until now uh and their roots in the Dixocrats how did you I mean what is the thing that makes 
brought you to the decision to well, be a Republican. Well, okay, my, my favorite, one of my favorite candidates is Rand Paul, right? right? Um, is who? Rand Chris, Paul? Rand Paul, yeah, yeah. I know uh-huh. you have some flaws, you know, and, 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 and I understand that. But there's things that... Can we, can we announce that Rand Paul is dead? No, we can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, but he's he's essentially dead as a presidential candidate, so... Well, yeah, correct, um, because my party is... is, is, is totally devoid of like intelligence as far as what we need to do. I mean, when he comes to the table with the Booker, you know, in charge of this criminal justice reform and restoring selling voting rights, I mean, those things are what we need from the other side in order to be able to progress as a society. And when you have a party who's so divisive and and, and so worried about a constituency, because I've actually done studies on I'm mean, going to college for political science for this, where um, we look at the how the constituency right now is controlling the very voice of the political party to the far right extremism where it's racism and xenophobic action and, and things of that Okay, um, I know. We can't I, have I, a, a – we've got some other callers, so we can't yeah, have a long discussion ab, ab, about that. But I'm going to ask um, Pascal Robert, who's a political scientist himself – uh-huh. A, a, a student of politics, not a political scientist. A student of politics, and, and I'm a student, so you know whatever you got, my brother. You know, I'm I'm more than willing to listen. I'm a, I'm a the, very the first open thing person, we want but... want to do is to dig you out of the GOP, and <laughs> you know, okay, and well, one I'm of the things that you have to do if you really I'm understand the history. If you really understand the history of politics in this country and public policy and the government infrastructure that has gotten created by uh, Republican administrations, then you would have to second-guess yourself about where you are. But I'll let Pascal handle that. And we only have a few, a few seconds because we've got to go to some other callers. No problem, no problem. Well, Janice, you might actually be kind of shocked and disappointed in my response, but I would make the argument oh, well, that... Oh, well, you already killed would, my Black History <laughs> Month moment. I, I would make... I mean, first of all, I, you know, this, this brother, if he ideologically wants to be conservative and Republican because that's where his politically ide- political ideology lies as an African-American, I have no problem with that. I actually encourage black people to actually make their political decisions based on where they are in their lives. But I do not support the Republicans for a variety of reasons. I'm not a conservative. I don't believe in their 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 marriage to, you know, free market, you know, capitalism and, and their regulation of, of deregulation of everything. But I will say this is that I would make the argument that in the post civil rights era, the most damage that has been done to black people in this country, policy Don't you say it Policy. There's no question that it has been not only Democrats, but particularly one Democrat, which is Bill Clinton. There has been no no president that has eviscerated the black middle class with his deregulation of finance capitalism. No president but, but, has put but, but, more. But come on, Pascal. There's there is no way in which not all of us understand the idea that Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were 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 conservative capital capitalist plants in the Democratic Party. No, but they were. This is the point. This is the point. They were not plants. They transformed the Democratic Party into their politics. I will. As I will agree of, about that. You disagree about that? I said I would agree about that. You know, say something. This was not something that happened in a vacuum. This was basically an agreement by Southern governors in the 80s 
When Jesse Jackson registered over 2 million people to vote, he had beat Al Gore in the South Carolina primary. They decided, after Ronald Reagan beat Mondale in every single state except Minnesota, that they need to get black people's issues out of the Democratic Party. Bill Clinton was just one of a collection, Sam, none of Southern Democratic uh, politicians, mostly governors. Sam, I have forgotten about Sam Nunn. Yes. Who had, who had come together Whoa. to conspire. To Somebody literally, pass literally, me another hard ginger ale. Who had, <laughs> who had basically taken the Republican concept of the Southern strategy implemented by Nixon, and they doubled down on it. And what was the political Absolutely. consequence? What was the consequence? The worst of Republican policy, domestic and abroad, they maximized and doubled down to the detriment of everyone. Okay, so, but, but Pascal, let's get back to the young brother because we're going to have to end uh, our engagement directly with him through this phone call. Uh, what would be your counsel to him in terms of his ambition to become a political scientist? Well, he actually wants to become a politician, and he well, he says he wants to run for office in in the Republican Party. And I would say that if if you truly want to you know run for politics, I encourage you to do so. Uh, I mean, if you want to do that as a Republican, that's your ideology, fine. But I would tell you that if your goal is to be a Black Republican, do not be a a a, a Ben uh, you know whatever his name is, uh, Ben Carson, oh, Carson? Uh, oh, no, uh, no, a black no. Republican. If you're going yeah, to be yeah. a black Republican, uh, be a Republican like uh, what was the name of the guy who was uh, he ran for president in the '90s? He was very, very, very interested in the condition of African. Jack Jack Kemp. I would suggest Jack you be Kemp. trying to be more of, uh, more of a Jack Kemp Republican. And as much as you may be a fan of Rand Paul, who's a libertarian, I hope you realize that libertarians, particularly Rand Paul's father, were opposed to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because they believe that it is not the role of government to interfere in people's ability to be racist and decide who they want to hire or fire. So the, I, I, am, I find libertarians to be even more problematic than regular Republicans, because the legal protections that came forth in the Civil Rights Movement that protect black people from housing discrimination, employment discrimination, and all of those type of discriminations ideologically violate their core beliefs as libertarians because they don't believe that that type of behavior should be regulated in the government sphere. So I really think that you need to reassess the type of Republican you want to be. And I do think that if you are really interested in doing things that to the benefit of the black community, you really need to abandon that, that Rand Paul uh, libertarian-esque kind of thinking and develop a kind of uh, ideology in the context of the Republican Party that talks about building the black community within a framing that appeals to ideas and concepts uh, within the Republican Party that change the economic and political reality of the black community. That's the best advice I could give to you on that regard. 385, thank you so much. We hope you'll join us with Dr. Lester K. Spence next week when we're going to be talking about his new book, which I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed in terms of the information, Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics, and give up the GOP, no matter what Pascal says. He's a brilliant brother. He don't know what he's talking about in that regard. Wow. <laughs> Six four six, you're on the air. Hey, BJ, how you doing? It's Jay. Hello to Pascal. Okay, Jay, how you doing? I'm all right. Listen, 
first, let's stand up and take a moment of silence and thank Satan for calling Anthony back home to him. Wait a minute, Jay. Last night I heard this huge boom. And I didn't know what it was. And then when I heard the news this afternoon, I said to myself, God damn, that was uh, Scalia busting hell wide open. You know you know what had happened? He was with a Mexican hooker, and that's what will come out. See, now this is the kind of, of gossip I that want. That was yep. his demise that... Um, you know please why let it, please let it be a gay hooker. It was, it was a Mexican it was a Mexican hooker or if a not Mexi- maybe a Puerto Rican. A gay hooker. Mexican I'm hooker. sorry to say that could be hey, better yet, better yet, it could have been a transgender. You we, we don't know what those type of twisted freaks. But listen, let let me just say this to Pasquale. Pasquale, I would like to Pascal. thank Pascal. 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 Robert. My yes. brother. I would just like to thank you for all of your great work, and I hope that you continue to put the word out about Hillary Clinton. Because, listen, we just need to use one thing, what she's doing over in Haiti, your homeland. Oh, man, you about to get me on a soapbox. You about to get me on a soapbox right now. Wait a minute. But listen, listen, I got to tell you this right quick. There's only one other person that I know, and people be sleeping on this sister, that has done the the work necessary to get our people off the plantation regarding Hillary Clinton, and that's Utrecht Lee. She has done the, the work yeah, she has. that if we would just listen to what she's saying and how she's pointing out the dirtiness of Bill and Hillary Clinton towards people of color and what she's doing over in Haiti, we would run from that woman. That woman is a disaster. She's worse than Obama, and Obama is horrible. Bernie Sanders could never be as bad as Hillary or Obama. You know why? Because Satan comes from him, too. That's it. You'll be in the same position as Antonio. Because, listen, Clinton and Obama, they both basically both the same. But Clinton and Bill back in office? Could, could, I mean, what is going to happen listen, to listen, our people? Let me, bring it, brother, let me bring it down real simple. Barack Thank Obama, you for your call, Jay. Barack Obama is the Frankenstein's monster that the Frankenstein of Bill and Hillary Clinton created. That's special what all you got to say. He is the mon- well, he's, you, they are the Frankenstein well, you know, and he real, is Frankenstein. It's real monster. interesting. It's real interesting, Pascal, because I had a feature for the show tonight where you uh, were talking with, with our Common Ground voice, Jared Ball and Yvette Carnell, about the Hillary legacy. And maybe this is a good good opportunity for us to listen uh, to that. This is Pascal Robert on the Real News Channel. With Transforming Jared. truth to power, oh. one broadcast at a time. Sanders' victory 
uh, in New Hampshire yesterday was definitely something that was significant, not so much because he won, because it was expected that he won, but he won by over a 20-point margin, which was pretty, pretty shocking. I think it was very much devastating to the Clinton machine that he won with such numbers. I think that uh, the fact that he tied her in Iowa, and as a matter of fact, according to some numbers, he may have beaten her, but due to some shenanigans, he, uh, he basically ended up in a tie, would have been even better for him and set him off and running in a much more advantageous way. I also do not support the uh, the Sanders campaign, but somewhat maybe for different reasons. Is that I do not support the Sanders campaign because his foreign policy to me does not seem to be a deviant from the traditional American imperialist kind of global hegemonic worldview that I see most American presidents sharing. And for me, someone who is not only you know you know born and raised in the U.S. but of Haitian parentage, foreign policy is a major issue to me. And for you know Bernie Sanders to be talking about how he views the Middle East in the same perspective as Hillary Clinton and neocons does not inure me very well to his, his, to his candidacy in any way. So that Clintons have been using Haiti as their personal ATM card for over 20 years. You know, they basically, you know, there was an article that came out called the King and Queen of Haiti, talking about Bill and Hillary Clinton. So it's ironic to me that a country is that is perceived to be so poor in the Western Hemisphere. Why is it that the, the most significant democratic power couple of American history is so interested in being entangled in a country that seems to be so poor and have no economic value? Maybe it's because there are things there that have economic value. So, so for me, in terms of the Clintons, there was no question at all that Hillary Clinton and, 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 and her political family to me are, are a non-starter. And, and before we even get to just Haiti, I, I, I question the fact that now African Americans are being considered as Hillary Clinton's firewall. I do not know how anyone who could be a serious student of American political history, or even if you're not a serious student of American political history, how anyone in their right mind in the black community could actually support a Clinton presidency when, in my opinion, and I've said this publicly, there is no president in the post-civil rights history, perhaps even going back to Woodrow Wilson, that has more done more damage to black people than Bill Clinton. From deregulating finance capital and causing the subprime mortgage crisis that extricated more black wealth and perhaps any time in modern history they're putting more black men in prison than any president in the post-civil rights history of the country by 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 scapegoating poor black women with welfare reform by running a racist campaign in 92 basically this is our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves And that was before, that was uh, yesterday when we decided to do that piece, and we thank Jared Ball at the Real News Network for that interview with Pascal Robert and Eva Carnell uh, this week. Um, and, and, and that's what Jay was talking about. You called the Clintons uh, use of uh, Haitian politics, um, uh, that they used it like an ATM machine. I like that uh, Haiti is the ATM card of the Clintons, and it has been for over 20 years. The, the Haiti as a country is what bankrolls their 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 seed, the Clinton Global Initiative uh, uh, all over the world. The, Hillary Clinton's brother has shares of gold mines in northern Haiti that she got, he got through contracts through his relationship with his sister, uh, the Clintons 
are involved in every single major business development deal in Haiti, from hotels to oil to gold to resource development to, to, to farming. Haiti is basically their personal but, slush fund. But see, here, here's, here, here is my question, and this is, Yvette, we're going to talk about this reckoning. We're going to really talk about this reckoning because it is my understanding that the 21st Century Institute for something or another, Ron Daniels and Rick Adams and others uh, are supposed to be the watchdog for Haiti. And while years ago, 10 years ago, they were talking about the Clintons and their relationship to uh, the nation of Haiti, uh, they haven't been talking about it before. So who are the watchdogs now? Well, I think that since the earthquake, pretty much what has happened is that because we have a Democratic presidential administration and we have the Clintons who are seen to be the guardians of the country, that many people of, in the African-American community, particularly Democrats, who were so vocal during the Bush administration when they created a coup to take out President Aristide, have become silent because they realize that we can't criticize Democrats in terms of how they treat the first black independent Republican in, in, republic on the Western Hemisphere, but we can only do it when Republicans do it. So what has happened is that basically those people who claim to be the guardians of Haiti have ended up uh, turning Haiti into the victim of partisan politics, and because the Democrats have the rock right now, they're just, they're just going to sit silent. Where is Randall Robinson's outrage? Randall Robinson, well, who was a great friend of the Aristide, who was a great friend of Haiti during the 90s, who wrote his book uh, about, uh, about, about Haitian history and the importance of Haiti. Where is Randall Robinson's outrage about the Clintons? Where is Randall well, Robinson's know, outrage about the election situation in Haiti right now? Well, you know, that's what the reckoning event is all about, that we've got to start. And, you know, uh, Randall is... Uh, and has been for many, many, many years since I was a college student, a very good friend of mine. He um, is in Saint, living in St. Kitts in exile or self-exile. I don't know what he's doing. But he wrote uh, a book about the reckoning, but it was really about African-American uh, politics and white supremacy and racism in America and the state of apartheid for African Americans. But Yvette, on this on this note, who really are our watchdogs, both on and, and how is Hillary Clinton gonna get past this? Because keep in mind that we have a large contingency of Haitian immigrants who in the next Five years, a large part of that immigrant population will become American citizens. How's that going to play out? I I I think Pascal is exactly right in terms of you know in terms of you know his assessment of Haitian politics. He knows a lot more about it than I do. But Americans aren't aren't typically that engaged about international politics, let alone international politics that that involve a poor black country. And and that's just the regrettable part of why this why there won't be a reckoning here, in terms of what happens. I mean, if anything happens to Hillary Clinton, if Hillary Clinton goes down, I would look to those emails 
the, you know, we're still talking about the FBI investigating, and, and, and at one point Hillary Clinton actually accused, you know, uh, um, you know, a, a member of the Obama, one of somebody who was appointed by Obama of coordinating with the Republicans in, in terms of trying to torpedo her campaign in, in January. So if we're looking for a reckoning, I would look to that, or I would also look to Bernie Sanders and his class analysis in terms of, you know, before Scalia, before Scalia died, what we were talking about was how MSNBC went to South Carolina and could not find one person, one black person, who was a Hillary Clinton supporter. That was the conversation. We were talking about, we were talking, we were having a conversation about how during the debate, Hillary Clinton tried to cast herself as Barack Obama's best friend, and Bernie Sanders said, you know, I, I wasn't, there was one candidate who ran against him, and it wasn't me. You know, basically saying if, it had, if you had had your way, we wouldn't have had a black president. We were talking about the material conditions of poor people who are disproportionately black. And that's the kind of reckoning that needs to happen. Now, in terms of Haiti, I just don't think that's going to happen because Americans simply don't care. Americans simply don't pay attention. And that includes black, a lot of black Americans. You can't, you can't even get a lot of black Americans to pay, African Americans to pay attention to domestic issues in terms of what most affects their, their material life in terms of what most affects whether or not they can eat and sleep. And I was, I was having a conversation earlier today with a friend of mine, and we were talking about how black people always say, well, black people, we're not monolithic. And that's true. Culturally, we're, culturally, we're not. You can find black people who love to build robots and black people who love trap music. You can find both of those things, in, you know, in, in the same community. But w- one area where we are kind of monolithic, not all, is by the fact that we're typically pretty poor. You know, and and, and yeah. even in terms of even even black people who have money don't really have money in that sense. They don't have money like white people have money, and, and there are very few of them. So I think, I, I, I think that's the kind of reckoning that that's the best reckoning we can hope for because the, the, the intellectual fortitude and the information, you know, that, that's being passed down to us in terms of the propagandized mainstream news doesn't allow for a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 here's here's a, a central question in all of this, and um, I want everybody to close their eyes because you know what is happening tonight. Barack Obama, who is in some place, I don't know, I have forgotten where he is, and Hillary Clinton is in South Carolina, and Bernie Sanders is in some place, but. I can imagine with my eyes closed, you all close your eyes, that Bill is on one phone, that Hillary's on another phone, and that President Barack Obama is on another phone, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz is on another phone, and they're all trying to figure out tonight, what do we do about the dead Scalia? Am I right? I think you're right. I, I I think it's not necessarily that deep. I think that these these type the political calculations of how to play these things out are something that at that level of politics are done pretty quickly. By I I don't think that you myself and Yvette are 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 any you know particular. You know we're not the only smart people in the room. These politicos have experts that do this analysis. This whole analysis that we talked about about who should be Obama's nominee, the chances of a black woman, how it will, how it will affect the election, I'll be quite honest with you. I think that that's a, that is an analysis that was done in five minutes for all of these parties in terms of people around them. 
that okay. you know, this was like that you know they this so there is no question in my mind that the question that the conversations aren't what do we do now that Scully is there. The question is okay, how do we get the plan imp- implemented? What are the things you that know, needs to be do- to be done? Yeah, let's go back to our phones five one zero. You're on the air. Thank you for your call. Hello, how are you? Uh, this is Mr. Research calling from California. How's everybody? Mr. Research calling from California? Yes, ma'am. Okay, yeah. What's your um, question? Here's a question. Um, it appears that when the sister, well, two parts. When the sister said monolithic, I, I always you know, wonder why people don't see that that's really a kind of misnomer. We we are monolithic in skin tone to everybody else. We may not be monolithic in thought, but in skin tone we are to everyone else. The same way when you go in India or Thailand, those darker skinned individuals, because of the caste system, C-A-S-T-E, they're monolithic. But nevertheless, my question really is, it appears that in order for people to get things done on a local level, there needs to be energy pushed toward doing things locally. And we seem to be at a point for the past couple of years, especially since Reagan, where we're more complaining rather than creating. And no matter which side or president or whatever philosophy of politics you apply to, it doesn't seem like we've gotten the urban experience has gotten to understand that local is more important than federal. Why does the panel think that is? I think that's a good point. I think it's a fair question, but I think that to, to the question of the monolith is that we should not underestimate the fact that there are uh, people in black communities all over this country, particularly in cities, who have been working on local issues, whether it's you know police brutality, whether it's uh, uh, anti-poverty initiatives, for decades, and those people get are they get no one rewards them or thanks them. So I don't think that we should assume that no one in the black community is concerned about local issues. There are there are. Let me let me explain why let, let me explain why I say that. Because when it comes to a local judge, you do not see a a uh you, you see a rap concert promote itself more about who's coming to do the rap rather than the judge that the people you say are working behind the scenes are promoting. I tell people in politics all the time, especially older folks, why don't you go rent out space on the banner of a of a, of a of a rap promoter or or nightclub promoter just to get the bottom of their page for a hundred dollars when you got a judge that you want running. That's something I I did at one point in time. I I, so, I understand I understand exactly what you're saying, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. I just wanted to at least acknowledge the fact that that we do have activists and organizations and people involved in various parts of you know, the nonprofit world, otherwise in black communities who are involved in local issues. But I do absolutely agree with you that the larger body politic, not so much only in the black community, this is an American phenomenon because a lot of times people say, well, oh, black people are politically immature or black people don't know what's going on politically. That is not 
just an African-American reality. Americans do not really engage in deep analysis of politics, the issues of policy, as much as people really, really, really think they do. They, they really don't. Most Americans don't know, you know how the Congress works, basic civics concepts, because this, the, the political education that needs to be given to people to engage their political administrations on a local level is not something you learn in school. You don't learn this in school. You don't learn this in your job. You have to be interested in developing that political savvy. And unfortunately, because of the way in which our society is functioning, those who are, who are able to have a job, working 8, 9, 10, 12 hours a day, and just want to be able to pay their bills, or, or and unfortunately end up just watching football or whatever the sports, they don't really get the motivation to engage in a system that they think is fundamentally going to work against them anyway, and it's, there's no use to, to really engage and support it, because there is the, 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 pro, the process of political education showing people that who your school, who is on your school board, who your mayor is, who the judges are, who your police commissioner is, who your district attorney is, is perhaps more important to your day-to-day life than who your congressman or who the senator is from your state. And we do not really shape our politics that extensively as most American citizens. But unfortunately... Pascal, there's a a piece of what happens in the media that tends to formulate the direction in which people think about politics. Um, and, And we talk about this issue on this program every Saturday night, the need to be able to create a local infrastructure for political empowerment and education. So um, to the caller. Go ahead. Go ahead. And I think the gentleman doesn't understand, like I've been a conservative for some time. We get paraphernalia constantly. So that kind of goes against what he's talking about, even with the misinformed, mis, miseducated on how the system works, uh, country Republican. They, they they are constantly fed stuff in the mail about what's coming up. But you have to they, understand. You have to understand the economics that drives that. For instance, no, no, I do. In, okay, for instance, in Boston, Seattle someplace else and another place in New York and Washington, D.C., you go into any major public transportation center, the train station, the bus station, or whatever, you get on a bus and you get a free newspaper called the Metro. It's it's nothing but a propaganda piece of paper that substitutes a real news reporting newspaper that is free to the public. And you watch these people reading it thinking that they are really reading a newspaper, and it is not a newspaper. It is a propaganda paper. Right. I, I agree with that's, that, but I'm that's saying the economics of politics. No, I agree. And, I, I'm, that's, and, and that's we have dropped thing. part of our language, and I want, I, I want Yvette Carnell to comment on this. Uh, because it's nice for the political elite to talk about what people don't do and what people should do, but the thing is that there are impediments and barriers 
that are in place, and it has been caused not only by conservatives in this country, but by neoliberals in this country, that prohibits the kind of political education, especially that black people need in this country. Yvette? I mean, I would, I would, I would certainly agree in terms of what you just said. In terms of um, you know the the, the the obstructions that are there, you know, in terms of those obstructions that 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 never seem to kind of uh, uh, get discussed or become part of the become part of the the political political conversation, um, and 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 the, that is a consequence of the lack of having a, a political education. I think the thing that you and I have discussed time and time again is how to get people back there to where they do have a political ed- education, to where they do know the basics, to where they're not having an elementary conversation in terms of politics. And I would just let me just make one one more quick point. About, I mean, the, the gentleman said when he first came on about you know you know we're not monolithic, but we do have the same skin tone. My my whole point about monolithic is this. In terms of race and racism, racism racism manifests itself in terms of material consequences. Like that's how we know racism. We know racism because of because of how how black people get paid, how black people get employed, the housing you know housing discrimination. That's how we see racism in real time. So my main issue is not saying that black people you know when I say black people are not monolithic, I'm not saying I'm not in any way implying that that you know. There are certain there are differences in terms of oh some of us are very rich some of us are very poor whatever I'm saying that in terms of that yes we're all pretty poor you know comparatively to white people and so when I talk about that that's what I'm saying and I'm saying we're poor and so I want to focus on the consequences of of that poverty and alleviating that poverty I'm not saying that you know you know black people don't experience racism. Uh, I appreciate your call, 510, and hope you'll join us another time because I think it's a a worthy uh, conversation to have. I don't know exactly um, uh, what you mean by saying that you are conservative, but keep in mind, and I hope everyone... We we got a lot of of black Republicans and conservatives calling today, Janice. What's going on? Here's the thing. It's like like I wanted to be fair and listen to what you guys were saying, but my, my challenge is in that in our discussion, it appears that at times we marginalize each other so much that we don't really hear the other's message. And I agree. Well, see, I agree. It, it, it works. Let me tell you how I'll it works for me. I'll be quiet. I'll be quiet. Okay, tell me what I can tell. Let me tell you how it works for me, even in my personal life and not necessarily in my broadcasting life, because um, even in my broadcasting life, um, I don't deal with people to whom I believe does not have the interests of poor and working people at heart. I do understand, sir, that politically and in many other ways, morally, um, most black people are conservative to, to the extent to where race intersects in the hardships in their lives. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, Queen. Uh huh. So uh, maybe we need to have uh, Pascal and Yvette come back at another time, and we can talk about 
um, the black conservative uh, as a partner. Um, well, that wasn't my point. I, I mean, that's 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 you know we're, we're kind of spinning it away. So I want to hang up, but I, I just want to make my actual point is this: we I, have to get uh-huh. we have to get everybody involved locally in participating. It's not an issue well, of being conservative or the other part. Mm-hmm. My thing is that we 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 are monolithic in our skin tone to other individuals. And because of that, we have to work together, whether independent, Green Party, Coffee Party, I really don't care. You've got to get people locally of an urban mindset and an urban living lifestyle to participate in their city judges, family court judges, the simple stuff, not just the federal. And so that I, was I agree with you 100%. I think you're absolutely and, correct. And, 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 and I say that, that almost every that. Saturday night. Uh, I talk about it a lot. You're absolutely right. It's where you eat, you live, you sleep, where your children are educated, where the revolution right. is going to happen. Okay, thank you well, so thank much you for guys. your call. Okay. Um, Pascal and Yvette, this has been so useful. Um, <coughs> my day didn't start out um, thinking about uh, Antonin Scalia in Texas hunting. I don't know what he was hunting for. Quail. Quail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'll we'll know more. And I certainly thank you for for joining us. I'm gonna mute you so you can stay with us for the rest of the show. But you know what? The the what? offer still the offer is still on the table. The offer is still on the table. Our Supreme Court has been a an arm of conservative and Republican activism a long time. And the age of Obama has fallen tragically short of filling the prophetic legacy of Frederick Douglass, Nat Turner, Asata Shakur, Malcolm X. And we've still got to continue to plug at it. I hope that you will join me next week with Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Studies with Lester K. Spence. Uh, He will be with us to talk about um, scholars, activists, and analysts examining the growing divide between the wealthy and the rest of us and suggesting in his book, Knocking the Hustle, that the divide can be traced to the turn, the neoliberal turn. So your homework assignment for this week is read Knocking the Hustle by Lester K. Spence. Uh, You can do a Google online to get the book. And I hope that you'll join me, having read it and having learned from it and understanding. I mean, this book is just filled with great analysis about the problems that we face as a people. 
Thank you so very much for being with us tonight, and we'll see you next Saturday night. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm thanking Pascal Robert and Yvette Carnell for being with us tonight at last minute. Have a good week. Not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. Thank you for joining us here on Our Common Ground. And thanks to Yvette Carnell and Pascal Robert for joining us in our discussion on the death of Antonin Scalia. I'm Janice Graham. Next week, here, Knocking the Hustle with Dr. Lester Spence. I'll be listening for you. Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.